You're listening to the Centre Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message, recorded live from our Brighton campus. We're talking about a cosmic reality with personal consequences. Cosmic reality with personal consequences. And we're carrying on in our our Colossians series, looking at um, Colossians 1, verses 19 to 23. So, I'll read this out. It should come up on the screen, hopefully. Um, Yes, there we go. Amazing. So in verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, establish them firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Or it may say in the original it might say I Paul have become a slave and so that's kind of where we are this morning we've got this and as I'll explain hopefully as we kind of dive in and go through it we've got this cosmic reality that has personal consequences so let's work through this passage together if you can put up the first um, bit of the passage Jill is that all right So verse 19 starts with, God was pleased. It's a good place to start, isn't it? God was pleased. Now, I don't know if you remember much about the Old Testament, but when God finished his creation, he was pleased, wasn't he? God, in a state of something, gives God pleasure. And at this this point here in Colossians, We have that idea that God was pleased. Well, why was he pleased? He was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ. Not part of his fullness, not some of his fullness, but all of his fullness. Remember, we talked um, last week about um, kind of Christ being supreme and that that you can't kind of take it or leave it. You can't have a bit of Jesus and a bit of something else a bit of this and a bit of that. But actually, God was pleased to have all his fullness, the entirety of the fullness of God, dwell in Christ. Now, that word dwell is an interesting one, because if we think about what it says at the beginning of John's Gospel, where it talks about Jesus as the word, you have the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But when I was looking into this, I found that they're, they're two different Greek words. So the word in John has this sense of tabernacled or pitched his tent, like the presence of. So if you remember in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was kind of the presence of God, but it was a tent that they could move and they could take from one place to the other. This idea of the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us is like God pitching his tent amongst us on the earth. So his, his presence came and was, was pitched at that point. But then you expect a tent could be taken up 
and and moved around again and taken to another place. And as as we see, Jesus was kind of tabernacled amongst us for those 33 years of his life. And then you got the presence of God kind of more more um, permanently in the spirit coming and dwelling amongst the whole of the earth through that. And so you get the sense of tabernacle with the, with the phrase in John. But here, this word is more to do with like settling, to reside, to put down roots, to live there. See, the presence of God, the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. It resided in him. It wasn't just there for a part of the time, but it was there for the whole time. And so I I find that quite interesting. I find it quite profound that God's fullness settled in Christ. And then there's a result of that, isn't there? As a result, through him, he reconciled to himself all things. Through Christ, God reconciled all things to himself. And I kind of thought where the fullness of God resides, all things are made right. Where the fullness of God is, all things are made right. Kind of reminds me of another phrase, that where where the presence of the Lord is, there is freedom. But which all things does he mean? Paul even goes on to explain it a little bit more. He says, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So he's not just satisfied with saying, yes, all things, all things are are reconciled. He goes on to explain which, which all things, all things that you understand and that are within our realm, things on earth, and all things that kind of outside of our realm. There's a cosmic thing going on. There's something that's bigger than what we understand. There's something that's bigger than what we see that is going to be, that is being reconciled through Christ to God. Things on earth, things in heaven, all things. And then he goes on to explain the process. How does this happen? How, through Christ, does God reconcile all things to himself? What's the process? Paul says, well, it's it's by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, we're in a we're in a time where I don't know if you've followed the news, but you may have seen the Moab bomb, mother of all bombs, that was um, enormous by the by what they've been describing it like got a blast radius of like a mile or something. Um, what's what's the aim of that? The aim of that is to bring about peace. At least that's what's stated, right? It's a kind of strange way, but this is the way that we understand peace kind of in in the modern world, in the, in the kind of Western mindset. We have peacekeeping troops, don't we? We have kind of armies that go in to try and subdue the enemy who've got the wrong philosophy or are doing the wrong thing or they've not got this sorted or that sorted. So we need to defeat them in order to bring about peace. And that's kind of how we... We see peace, yet peace was brought about by God through sacrifice. It says, through his blood shed on the cross. 
through submission to a Roman torture technique. The worst kind of death that someone could die. That's how God brings about peace. It seems kind of upside down. It seems kind of a different way than we would understand peace. But how can we be so sure that it worked? This is the crux of the issue, really. And simply the answer is resurrection. Resurrection is how we can be so sure that this worked. Resurrection is the hinge upon which Christianity turns. Is Christianity true? Is this way that we follow true? Well, the answer is, is resurrection true? Because Paul says, if it's not, then we are among the people most to be pitied. In, I'll read these um, verses in 1 Corinthians, um, if I unlock my iPad correctly. I will. 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 12 to 22. So you can go there if you've got it with you. It says, if, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. See, resurrection is important. Resurrection is this hinge. And the question, is resurrection true? Paul answers emphatically, yes. Yes, it's true. And moreover, it has to be true. It has to be true, otherwise what's the point? He's basically saying, look guys, I'm not trying to keep you here under false pretenses. If it didn't happen, then we might as well just... Pack up, go home, forget about it. There's no point. But it did happen. And if it did happen, there's a consequence. There's things that should happen. There's things that need to change. There's, there's kind of a commitment that needs to be made to Christ on the back of it. And so, I mean, I don't want to labor this point too much, but there's, there's all sorts of evidence out there about the resurrection and we can look to biblical evidence we can look to the empty tomb the grave clothes not toilet paper as it said in the video um the appearances to the disciples the appearances to over 500 people the fact that he ate with the disciples it's kind of points to this image of it not being a hallucination and that kind of thing 
the fact that people died for this story, the fact that the apostles, the people who were with Jesus, were willing to be martyred for this story, which you wouldn't do if it wasn't true, right? The fact that there are no competing traditions. It's not like there's there's the theory that Jesus was resurrected and there's the, this other theory here and there's this other theory there. That there's, there's no competing traditions. This, this is the only one. And you can look into books, you can, you can do your reading, you can do your research. Even um, Nicky Gumbel states at the beginning of his, um, of his alpha kind of videos and that, that he thought that the crux of Christianity was the resurrection. And that if he could prove that the resurrection didn't happen, then he could kind of rubbish the whole thing and kind of tell people that, you know, it's all rubbish because this didn't happen. But the point is that in trying to prove that it didn't happen, he actually came to faith, actually came to realize that it did. And that's the reality in which we live. And then further than that, resurrection is confirmed by the witness of the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 11 says, The same Spirit lives in us that raised Christ from the dead. The same Spirit that testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Children of God and co-heirs with Christ. You see, there's personal consequence to this cosmic event. There's a personal consequence to the cosmic event. And this is how kind of we know within ourselves so I guess as we move on in the next part of this these verses we get to verse 21 which is still on the screen verse 21 still on that sorry we have a past status what happened to us or what what where were we kind of in the past it says once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Sounds like not a great place to be, to be honest. Alienation from God. Enemies of God in our minds. In other words, there's kind of two things going on there. First, alienation. There's this word alien. Kind of you see it in the Old Testament cropping up about being being an alien, in other words, being a foreigner, being someone who's not part of the group, not part of the the people of God, it often is in that those kind of um, that kind of terminology in the Old Testament. An alien outside of the relationship, outside of the covenant relationship with God, we're kind of these people on the outside. But not only are we on the outside, we move from being on the outside to also being enemies, enemies of God in our minds. Why? Because of our evil behavior. So not only are we not part of the group, or this is in the past, should I say, not only are we not part of the group, but we're also outside of that relationship. We're also enemies because of our evil, evil behavior. You see, the truth is that what you do flows out of who you are. If you're alienated from God, you start to become against God. Luke 11 verse 23 says that he who's not with me is against me. You can't just see Jesus as a good guy who kind of had some good moral teachings and was, was a generally nice guy and um, 
because people always kill nice people on the cross for being too nice, right? Um, he was he was either who he said he was or he wasn't. So we're either alienated from God or we're not. And then what you do in response to that flows out of who you are. See, we were in a place where there's no way back to God on our own. We were in a place where we needed God to step in. And that's where we get to verse 22 where it says, but now. I love that. But now. There's a difference. See, cosmic reality has personal consequences. But now God has reconciled you. Remember God reconciled all things earlier on in those verses. We are part of that all things. God has reconciled you. He stepped in. He made the first move. And how did he do it? He did it by Christ's physical body through death. It's interesting when you line these up together. I've kind of got them lined up on my sheet in front of me. You have kind of in a, um, a horizontal line, I have alienated from God enemies from God and then kind of over the way here God reconciled us and then on the next line down I have evil behavior and then over here I have Christ's physical body through death does that make some sense does that help you visualize it that the reason that we were alienated from God and enemies of God was our evil behavior the reason that we're reconciled to God is Christ's physical body through death you see, Christ did something on the cosmic level that had personal consequences for us. We then become holy in his sight. We then have peace with God through the blood shed on the cross. We're presented holy in his sight. Who we are now flows out of what God has done. In the same way that what we do flows out of who we are, who we are now flows out of what God has done, what God has changed. The world that is twisted and turned upon its head, not just the earth, not just things on the earth, but things in heaven, the whole of the realm, the whole of everything that we can kind of conceive and can't conceive has been fixed, has been reconciled to God. And we're part of that story. See, Jesus is presented holy in his sight. His sacrifice, was he was unblemished. He was free from accusation. He was holy in his sight. And therefore, through Christ, we become holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And this leads me on to a question. And this is the question that's kind of in verse 23. That question is, what happens tomorrow? Or you want to put it another way. How do we live as resurrection people? See, we are people who live as Easter Monday people. We recognize that Good Friday happened. We recognize the uncertainty of that holy Saturday in between. We recognize the joy of um, Easter Sunday. 
then the question is what happens tomorrow? What happens on Easter Sunday? How do we live like people of the resurrection? See, there's a future hope. We ought to be living as people who who flow from what God's done. What we do flows from what God's done. What we do doesn't flow from who we were in the past, when we were alienated from God, when we were enemies of God, and those those kind of resulting kind of sins and things that we did came out of that. We actually live now in a place that we are presented holy. We're presented without blemish. We're presented as free from accusation. And so who we are now flows from that. So what we do now flows from who we are. Does that make sense? This is what Paul's saying. There's a future hope in verse 23. He says, continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Two things there, faith and hope. And they're kind of that idea of being established and firm and not moving is kind of interchangeable between all those words. Established and firm in faith, established and firm in hope, not moving from faith, not moving from hope. Hope in what? Faith in what? In the gospel, in the good news that we've heard. That Christ has risen. Christ has died, Christ has risen and Christ will come again. That good news that one, we've heard, that two, everyone's heard. And that three, Paul says, I've become a slave to. You know, it's, it's not good enough that I've just heard it. It's not good enough that I've just told people about it. But this cosmic reality has had personal consequences in my life. I've actually become a slave to it. It's, he says in Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In Philippians, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, the life I live now is in Christ. That's what it's about. That's my purpose. If I'm looking for purpose, if I'm looking for something to believe in, it's a life in Christ. That's my purpose. And so then for us, we've heard it. We've heard the good news. We've heard the gospel. Some of us may have let others hear it. Some of us may actively tell others about it. If, if you don't, I encourage you to, to do that. Let other people know about it. And the third point is become slaves to it. Now, it might sound scary and difficult. It might sound like a big step. This is, this is sometimes why the word servant's used. But the Greek is, the Greek is clear. It says, it says slave. It's something that takes over our whole lives. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. See, I've given away everything of me, and I now live by Christ. And this is, this is the idea when we talk about, we often talk about grace, don't we? We talk about this free gift that, that God's given us that we can be rescued kind of from, from our sins, kind of from the power of death and, and sin and all that kind of stuff. And that's, 
And that's fantastic and it is amazing. But there's a cost to it. See, grace costs us our lives. Living for God costs us our lives. It might be a free gift, but it will cost you everything. We become a slave to the gospel just as Paul is a slave to the gospel. But it's not that it just costs us our lives. It's that it frees us up to live a new life. So this idea of resurrection is to be raised up with Christ into new life. You see that image in baptism, don't you? You're, you're dead in your sins and you're raised to new life. The kind of imagery is all, it's very clear. And so as resurrection people, we live. As Easter Monday people, we live. We're people who bear witness to the cosmic shift of resurrection in Christ. And, and we live out that cosmic shift as resurrection, of resurrection as we live our own lives. Lives not lived for ourselves, for our own desires, for what we want, for what we want to happen and what we want to see happen. But lives that are focused on what the kingdom of God wants to happen. What it means to be under the, the kingship of God. What it means to be submitted to Christ and what he wants and what he wills and what he desires. See, when, it, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Sometimes we can take that and we can go, right, so I want X, Y and Z. I want a new house. I want a new car and I want you know, free toaster. Um, whatever. I want these new things, right? So if I just seek first the kingdom of God, I'll get my nice new house, I'll get my nice new car, and I'll get my free toaster. I don't think that's what Jesus is really saying when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. See, because when you start to seek first the kingdom of God, what happens is what you want changes. Because what you're seeking is different. So when in the past we were seeking something to satisfy our own needs and our own desires and what we wanted, when we start to seek first the kingdom of God, we start to want what God wants. We start to want to see him come and change and transform people's lives. We start to want to see a world that is, looks more like his world in Genesis than it looks now. We start to want to see a world that is Christ-shaped, that is cruciform, that is shaped like the sun and less about what we want, maybe less about the material things that are supposed to make us happy or the relationships or whatever is supposed to make us happy. We start living for the kingdom. And then all these things start to be added to us because all these things start to change. They start to become more in line with what God wants. See, grace costs us our lives. I think I've gone a little bit over time, so I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it there if that's, if that's all right. But just keep that question in mind. What happens tomorrow? How do I live as a resurrection person? How do I live as an Easter Monday person? What happens tomorrow? 
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast at Centre Church. One church, passionately loving God and people in Burgess Hill and Brighton. To get the latest news or for any other information, check out our website at www.centrechurch.uk.